Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. It's The Roy Green Show podcast. Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, spoke to us on the importance and significance of Remembrance Day. From the Financial Post, Diane Francis on the playbook for Alberta going forward. Montreal human rights lawyer Julius Gray on the strange legislation introduced in Quebec that has to do with Anglophones communicating with the Quebec government. Lior Samfiru, employment lawyer, on the firing of the McDonald's CEO for having a relationship with a subordinate. And we spoke with a pain patient who attempted suicide a few weeks ago because his medication was reduced arbitrarily by 80%. I want to talk to somebody I know has massive respect for everyone who served and serves and brings a unique perspective to the the whole issue because he's the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador and a good friend of this program's. Brian Peckford joins us. Premier, thanks very much for taking the time. I'm very grateful that you would have me on on this special day. When you hear the voice of Ed Mahoney, and and I'm sure you've met uh, Juno Beach veterans, what does it fill you with? Well, I I think the same as you just said. It it, it fills you with pride and it fills you with gratitude to start with. And nothing comes before those two concepts. But I also remember that I visited Juno Beach before 2003 when a museum was built there. But between 1945 and 2003, there was nothing there to recognize the heroism and sacrifice of our Canadian veterans. And when I stood on Juno Beach, I think it was 2001, 2002, it was late morning, it was overcast, and I got out of my car, my wife was in the car, I got out of my car, and I was right by the sand. And I looked out over the beach, and I could see no, and we traveled around the beach there, no thing to say that Canadians had been there, and I checked it out later. And it was one of the most powerful moments of my life, to stand there on that deserted, windswept beach, and think of what our Canadians experienced and did for us. And at the same time, sadly, there was nothing there to recognize them. Today, of course, through the veterans, the Canadian Legion, and a lot of volunteers across Canada, they forced the issue, and now we have a museum at Juneau Beach recognizing the bravery and sacrifice of our veterans. If I recall correctly, there was some political controversy over the building of that museum, of that memorial, and who was going to spend the money. Exactly. And the federal government of Mr. Chrétien sat on its hands, and I, I don't really want to talk about that, um, but it bears, since you, you brought up the issue of the memorial and the museum, and quite correctly, it bears reminding that it took from 1945 to 2003 for this memorial and uh, recognition and national thanks to the veterans to be actually on display. Meanwhile, we know that in the little villages close to Juno Beach in Normandy, they still honor uh, today uh, greatly the, the sacrifice by the Canadians who were the first in their villages to free them from the Nazi oppression. Absolutely, no question. And uh, like I say, when people ask me some of the moments of my life, as, as people ask all the time, different people, you know, what was it really that sort of stirred you here, there, or wherever, that Juno Beach experience stands out. The other thing that stands out is I also visited Gallipoli. My great uncle fought at Gallipoli and was injured there. And the thing that stands out, of course, are the cliffs and the hills looking out over the ocean there where the Allies were fighting with the Turks. But I remember that as well because uh, at the time in the First World War, Newfoundlanders were part of the British forces. We weren't part of Canada. We didn't join Canada until 1949. And so we're just amongst others there with the New Zealanders and the Australians and the British as part of the Allied forces. 
And that was quite a moving experience as well uh, because of the geography, but because of also what happened at Gallipoli. And the founder of modern-day Turkey, Akaturk, who was a colonel or commander in that war, his statements that are up at the graveyards there, where he talks about your sons are our sons, and that they will be honored the same on this land as if they were our own. Uh, a very moving... Uh, and there was a battle there where it, it was fought to a, a standstill. And both sides, the Allies and our, our foes, agreed to stop and allow each side to pick up their dead and bring them back behind the lines. So uh, Juno Beach and Gallipoli stand out for me. My brother, I have a brother who served much later in Cyprus with the Canadian Guards, and my wife has a grandfather who served in the, in the Second World War. So I have both family close and, and far apart, my great-uncle, and I have my own physical experiences of being at Juno Beach and at Gallipoli. You know, Premier, uh, so many Canadians have personal connections. And at this time of year, we hear about the personal connections. And I know I saw some emails yesterday and a little activity on Twitter. Um, but I saw emails yesterday as people do remember their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, um, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, the service they gave to the country and the devotion they brought to the country. And they, they, they fought and they died for Canada. And today, in 2019, there are men and women in the Canadian uniforms who will fight and will die for Canada as well. And this we must never, ever, ever forget. Let me ask you this. I'll do this. We'll have to take a quick break, and we'll, we'll do it when we come back. I want to ask you about how in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, Remembrance Day is, uh, is in fact recognized because, as you say, it was 1949, four years after the war ended, that Newfoundland and Labrador became part of the Canadian Confederation. Former Premier of Newfoundland, Brian Peckford, is starting off the show with us um, as we, we talk about Remembrance Day and and the significance and the importance to each and every one of us. By the way, the uh, Angus Reid Institute uh, did a survey, and they found that uh, 25% of Canadians say they will attend uh, a Remembrance Day service tomorrow. Others are thinking about it. And uh, four in five say Canada should do more to honor those who served in the armed forces. You know, we do have that social contract with the men and the women uh, in the... Uh, in the armed forces, regardless of a certain quote by a certain prime minister. Back with the premier, former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford. Premier, uh, so at home in Newfoundland and Labrador, what is done on uh, Remembrance Day? Uh, what do you remember specifically? Uh, and as, as you were, when you were premier, what were you involved with? We were involved heavily with the Canadian Legion and, and you know, having the Remembrance Day ceremonies uh, at the Cenotaph and then at the Legion uh, headquarters in Newfoundland. Uh, but what is perhaps remembered most, and what I remember most, and most Newfoundlanders of my age would remember most, is going to these ceremonies and recognizing the Newfoundland Regiment. The Newfoundland Regiment was formed when uh, the British declared war and called on their territories to supply people, soldiers, to the front. And the Royal Newfoundland Regiment uh, responded to that call with thousands and thousands of Newfoundlanders volunteering. And they went uh, to the front. And in one of the great uh, battles that Newfoundlanders have ever fought was at the Battle of the Somme, the Beaumont-Hamel battle, where the Newfoundlanders, as part of the British regiment, were ordered over the top and to come out of their trenches and to go across a flat piece of land over the top. And the Germans were on the other side, and it was thought at the time by the Allies that it was to be a surprise attack, but the Germans knew that the British were coming. And in this case, one of the first to go over were the Newfoundland regiment. 800 went over. The Germans knew they were coming. 
And when the roll call was called after the battle was over, 68 were there to answer the roll call in 30 minutes. Wow. There are so many uh, instances. And this is why we need to teach and teach about our, our war history. There are so many cases where battles began with a full complement or a reasonably full complement of soldiers. And when it was over, and in your case, that Battle of Somme, you said, was 30 minutes. That's an incredibly, that's such a terrible, uh, over 700 of the 800 were dead or, yeah. or wounded, They're right? Dead, wounded, or missing. Right. When the roll call was called. And, and it all took place in 30 minutes. And those Royal Newfoundland Regiment, just to, for, the, for the benefit of, of Canadians from coast to coast, especially Canadians outside of Newfoundland, that Royal Newfoundland Regiment were called the Blue Putties. The Blue Putties, because the color of their leggings below the knee, which is what a putty is, right. was blue. And they became known as the Blue Putties. So in Newfoundland, with anybody who knows anything about the First World War, the first thing comes to mind is the Blue Putties and their battle at the Beaumont Hamill village. I have to ask you this, and I'm going back to this Angus Reid uh, Institute survey, four in five Canadians. We should do more to honor those who served the armed forces. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I heard one of the other your numbers you mentioned was 25% are going to get out to a, uh, to a ceremony. That's a good number. I mean, that's a, that's a, it's, it's not as good as it could be, but it's certainly a good number. Well, uh, when you're talking least, about the full you know, population of the country. over 50% at least. Yeah. For some people, it's not easy to get out and to go to. True, true, true. Right. True. Uh, well, the, those who are able-bodied, however many there are, mm-hmm. there should be over 50% out somewhere mm-hmm. uh, celebrating uh, what, what happened and to honor all of those people. Uh, you know, democracy is on the decline on this globe. And we have all of these thousands of Canadians who fought for freedom. And it is very much in jeopardy in many parts of the world today. All the more reason to celebrate what happened in the Great War and in the Second World War. You want to read something or recite something? Yes. Uh, to end off my interview with you, I know you're busy with many. I, I want to recite the poem In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, We shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, May the 3rd, 1915. You know, as as you read that, and each time I hear it, I wonder what it was that Lieutenant Colonel McRae was thinking. What was it that, that caused him to write this incredibly emotional, um, moving, I, I won't, it's a tribute, but it's more than that because he was there yes. as it was happening. What was going on at that particular time, on yes. that day in his life, what had he experienced that caused him to write yes. those words? Because I they are among the most... I think it was the fields of poppies. I think it was the image. Yeah. Images are so powerful, and so many poets and artists and others write or carve out or paint something. And I think that red, uh, you know, and the blood that was being spilt for us was part of it. There, there inevitably is something that motivates any of us who write something that is meaningful to us. Yes. That creates the momentum, if you will. Yes, exactly. To, to make the words flow. Yes. And in that environment... Uh, in the middle of a war with death and dying and and battles all around you on a constant basis in the First World War, particularly over the trenches and out you went, and some of you came back, most didn't. 
I'm sure there was one, there must have been an incident, something in that day that yes, caused yes. Colonel McRae to write yes. those words in the way that he did Premier, because it's, it's yes. some of the most powerful writing that I've ever, ever heard in my life. And, and, and he was not only responding to uh, an incident or seeing the poppies, he, he had a very clear mind, because those last lines... He, 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 you know, he, he talks about what we're now talking about. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, we want you, we're calling out to you through the decades now to ensure that you don't forget what happened here at Flanders Fields. Premier Peckford, I always, always appreciate you coming on the program. Your words are invariably wise, thoughtful, they challenge us. They give us lots to think about, and you're a great favorite with the listeners to this program across the country. But today, they just hearing the emotion in your voice uh, and hearing your tribute to, to our veterans and to uh, our armed forces, especially meaningful. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. And let's have a wonderful day tomorrow. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Premier Brian Peckford, the former Premier of Newfoundland. And Labrador joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Diane Francis column in Friday's Net Financial Post. Here's a playbook for Alberta. Alberta must adopt Quebec's playbook and become a nation within a nation or threaten to leave. The ballot box does not work, and Alberta is Canada's breadwinner, but is treated like a stepchild. Diane Francis joins us on the Roy Green Show, National Post Editor-at-Large, Ryerson University, Distinguished Professor at uh, Ted Rogers School, Canada-U.S. Law Institute. Diane, thank you very much for the time. And and how would you describe the position Alberta finds itself in today in Confederation? Well, you know, it's as I said in the column there, Roy, which you cited, uh, it's it's the breadwinner for the whole country, and it's treated like a stepchild. Um, You know, this is another case, and, you know, I'm... uh, been around the business for a long time. This is the second Trudeau in Ottawa to try and steal money from Alberta, and it's like enough already. And it's really crazy because Alberta was then, back in 1980, when the National Energy Program came, as it is now, you know, the, the engine of economic growth for the whole of Canada. It pays all our bills, and it certainly subsidizes Quebec. In a big way. In, in a, a very big way. $13 billion. And then Quebec says, Quebec actually announces they're running a surplus. What would they be doing? They're running a $1 billion surplus, I think. And without that, without equalization payment, where would they be? And it's $4 billion. Without equalization payments from Alberta, uh, they would be in a major deficit if, unless, unless they they cut back on all the goodies they give everybody in Quebec. They subsidize every bloody business they feel like, that the liberals like. They uh, give people free daycare. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. They get to do whatever they want, and it's, it's using other people's money. Having recently lived in Quebec for nine years, I can guarantee you they don't take care of everybody. Because my last name was Green, if you know what I mean. Okay, well, you said it, I didn't. Well, I, I did, and I'll say it again. Uh, look, every day, Anglophones' civil rights are violated in the province of Quebec. Well, that's right, and some are immigrants, Okay happen to have, uh, you know, a belief in a religion that, that, that you know, has them wear hijabs or... Yeah, Bill or 21. Or, yeah, exactly. So that's fine. You know, I don't resent Quebec. I just say good on Quebec for gaining Canada to the extent that it has. All I'm saying is that Alberta's got to do exactly the same thing, and that is the playbook they've got to follow. And you know what? They've got to tell the feds, they've got to get the feds out of their business. Out of their out of their province to the extent they can, and if they're if they're prevented and blocked from doing those things that they deserve to have a fair deal in confederation, then they've got to have a referendum on leaving. And I got to tell you, there is no question that this is the world's fourth biggest oil producer. The world, it's only behind the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia in its importance in terms of oil production, and we're going to need oil for decades. This is not a dying commodity. And they've got lots of it, and the Americans would do a free trade NAFTA deal with Alberta in a New York minute. Yeah, and you know, though, that if Alberta were to take the steps that you're advising them to take in your column, and ta- steps that would lead, or at least it would point the arrow toward autonomy, like withdrawing from the CPP, like Quebec did, 
and again following Quebec's lead in collecting all taxes in the province or opting out of any new health and social programs, you know that Alberta would be catching Hades from uh, some national media um, stalwarts in Toronto, where they, but they never they never ever complain about Quebec. They never complain of Quebec, about Quebec. This is what I call, and they're completely captive, the media in this country, particularly the one we all pay for, the CBC. They're completely captive to what I call the climate change crowd. And, you know, their cheerleader is our Prime Minister Trudeau, who flits around in the election with two gas-guzzling jet airplanes and talks climate change and does nothing to attack the real problem of emissions, and that is people using too much energy. Not Alberta supplying too much energy, it's people using too much energy. But, you know, that would cost him votes. So he's not going to do that. So he's a hypocrite, and he's being less than honest. And, you know, so what's new? This is another Trudeau trying to steal money from the, from the, the breadwinner of the country, Alberta. Well, we do know that he drinks water out of cardboard boxes, Diane. Shame on him. Exactly. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Now, look, I'm, I'm as concerned about climate change as the next person. But one of the things that Jason Kenney, in his speech in Red Deer, where I was, uh, said was he pointed out some very interesting fact. He said that the demand for oil globally, and this is according to the International Energy Agency, which is the United Nations and all that stuff, said globally oil oil demand will go up from 110 million barrels a day to 100 from 100 million barrels a day to 110 million barrels a day by 2040. He they further went to say even if all of the countries and by the way China and India are exempted which are the biggest energy users of all but even if the US and the others comply with the Paris Treaty they will still have an increase in demand from 100 million a day to 80 million a day. So and and natural gas demand will double in the by that time. There is going to always be a need for oil. And by the way, we have the most ethical oil. We have a nice country. We don't exploit our labor. You know, we're not a dictatorship. We're not a medieval institution. We're not a horrible predator like Russia. And here we are. You know, getting punished by the country that benefits. I mean, it's it's beyond crazy. It's beyond crazy. It's wrong. With you 100% on that. Now, in the column, you also have suggestions for Saskatchewan and Manitoba, particularly toward the carbon tax. Yeah, well, they're against it. So is Ontario, by the way. And if you look at the map, you know, most of Manitoba voted conservative uh, against Trudeau and his hypocrisy and his unethical behavior with Jody Wilson, Ray Bull, blah, blah. And, you know, a good chunk of rural Ontario voted well, I think most of rural Ontario, southwestern Ontario, voted Tory, and all of Saskatchewan. I think Saskatchewan is the natural partner in terms of Alberta because they have the same culture, 100%. Manitoba's a little different. I haven't figured out Manitoba yet, but they are. And, you know, they have a different culture, but Saskatchewan doesn't, and they're also very much involved in the oil industry. And the fact is that the lack of pipeline access is, has prevented Saskatchewan from cashing in Lake North Dakota on the Bakken formation, oil formation, which is unbelievably prolific. I mean, Saskatchewan could be a major oil producer as well. You're suggesting, actually, in, in the column, that Alberta and Saskatchewan should do, if I read you correctly, that they should do what Quebec has done, and that is call for themselves, for the two provinces, to be a nation within a nation. Absolutely, because they are a different culture within the, within Canada. I don't see an appetite yet for separatism in in Alberta, but I'll tell you if they don't if they are not given a fair deal, and that is to get out from under certain certain federal government behaviors and laws and regulations that are designed to damage them, designed to damage them. If they can't get out from under that stuff then there will be a referendum on leaving. And, you know, it, this is a very serious problem. And so, you know, I don't know if this Trudeau gets it. The other one didn't. And it, it went to the brink, and it was a mess. And uh, But, you know, they're asking for, you know, a change to the equalization transfer payment so Quebec doesn't make $13 billion a year and, and or, or, you know, make, make like $13 billion a year out of the, the equalization program. Uh, they want to make changes. They want to 
agreed they want to withdraw from the Canada Pension Plan. And by the way, Alberta subsidizes the Canada Pension Plan because the game is rigged there, too. In other words, Albertans are paying twice as much in premiums, the employers and the employees, in Canada Pension Plan premiums as everybody else in the country. Now, Quebec pulled out, and they have a much, they have a very big um, Quebec Pension Plan nest egg. And, uh, and if Alberta pulled out, everybody in the rest of Canada would have to pay more in premiums because they're being subsidized by by. Uh, by um, Alberta, and Alberta could probably get their hands on the $50 dollars of the CPP plan that they're entitled to, so they can invest for the old age of their own people, and they would do a better job. Diane, it's been a long time since we talked last. I thank you very much for coming on today, and I'm, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't take so long until, until we talk again. Anytime, boy. Thank you. Thank you. Diane Francis, uh, Financial Post, and uh, was the first woman editor of a major newspaper in this country when she became the editor of the National Post. International expert and uh, university professor and newspaper columnist. In Quebec, as you probably heard, according to the new CAC government, provincial law will stipulate only, quote, historic, end quote, Anglophones, as defined by Bill 101, will be entitled to communicate with and receive services from the Quebec government in English. All others, only in French. Also, you've probably heard this story. The Quebec Immigration Ministry was refusing permanent resident status to a young businesswoman entrepreneur from France because one chapter of her Ph.D. thesis was written in English. The Quebec government claimed Emily Dubois' knowledge of French was insufficient. French is her mother tongue. It was only when this became an international story that we now have the Quebec government backing off and saying Ms. Dubois is actually going to be granted permanent residence status. What is going on? What is going on in the province of Quebec? Julius Gray, constitutional and human rights lawyer in Montreal, former law professor at McGill University, who has participated in a successful court challenge of a major provision of Bill 101. Julius, thank you very much for joining us. Only historic Anglophones may communicate in English with the Quebec government. What's a historic Anglophone? Well, I think it's, uh, if you want my opinion, it's a piece of uh, utter nonsense. Uh, I suppose you can create classes of people, but there's one thing that the government shouldn't do in a democratic state, and that is assign people their uh, categories. You can respect minorities. You can uh, allow say that freedom of association means that we can all belong to whatever group we want or whatever group will have us. But for the government to assign positions, uh, rather status, Anglophone, Francophone, Allophone is 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 reprehensible and 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 are also very silly. Now, of course, we can't take that all the way because there are some status things that do exist, native status, for instance. But that's a narrow law that gives out certain privileges, and one can understand that. Even so, there are many philosophical questions to be uh, discussed there. But the idea of creating a new category of all the traditional Anglos as opposed to all the other people who speak English would be very upsetting if it weren't so hilarious. So I, uh, I attended school in, uh, in Montreal, one year of, uh, of elementary school, and then uh, five years, Julius, of high school. It should have been four, but it took me five but I was a newly arrived person in Canada, and I and this is my story, and I had troubles in grade eight, so I've revisited it. Probably did me a world of good, but anyway. So would I be entitled to communicate with the Quebec government in English or, or not? Well, I have no no idea because the law hasn't <laughs> been published. Whether they count high school or not, whatever it is, I don't know if I would have the right because I was an immigrant at the age of nine as well, and I went to English school, mind you. So maybe I would have the right, but then. It is such a, a pointless debate. But I think the more important thing is 
it's the pettiness of this law. The issue is not whether the services can be delivered in English. That's taken for granted because the old English are going to have those articles. Therefore, the Quebec official should uh, tell a person who's asking him for things or needs something or somebody who's ill or looking for his pension or wants to know how to pay his taxes, I can serve you in your language, but I won't because I've received this instruction here. So too bad. Bring an interpreter. Well, you know, one uh, I think. I'm sorry. When I was still living in Quebec prior to 2016, and I don't know whether this was maybe maybe it was 2014 to 2015. There was an edict that came down that any community that had less than 50 percent of anglophones could no longer communicate with their municipal government in uh, in English. And I received a, actually a, a note from the mayor of the small community I lived in. And she was very apologetic for not being able to, not being allowed to speak, uh, communicate with us in English any longer, even though we were very close to 50-50. Yes, well, this is, this is part of, uh, there's a case that I acted in, in Rosemere, which we actually won, uh, that they cannot, uh, in a blanket way, take away the uh, municipalities that were uh, certified, but then they found, let, they, they used legislation to undo uh, the Rosemere case, uh, but it's that type of thinking that is very upsetting. No. And you know, uh, this particular government is incredibly nationalistic. It just comes up with things, much more so than the Parti Québécois. Uh, I mean, I've seen two governments that in, in the history of Quebec that have really annoyed me that way. The Parti Québécois had a goal, had an idea, but it was not petty in this way. But the Bourassa government and the Liberals and this one, where every day they come up with something, and it's completely unnecessary. And one of the characteristics of these laws is that nobody is any better off. Uh, if you build 101, the argument was French will be lost, and there was serious demographic uh, evidence. So you could agree or not, but, you know, I think there was something to it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it was not a gratuitous law. It was to protect French. But can anybody tell me how French is protected because some person cannot fill out a form in English or cannot get his tax return in English no. or, or, or etc. There is absolutely no winners to this debate. Well, it's just an attempt to squeeze uh, an already weak community which doesn't pose a threat to anyone. It really is re- regrettable. Now, maybe uh, cooler heads will prevail. Quebec did uh, go back on some of its immigration stuff this weekend and maybe... Um, Gradually, uh, we will be able to uh, um, bring the problems back to a common sense attitude. Well, good luck. Uh, because normally, there is no tension between English So let me, and I have to ask you this. Premier Legault is a former minister in the Parti Quebecois government. Are his, by doing the things that he's doing, his government's doing now, are his PQ epaulettes showing? Well, no, I think the PQ is not like this. I think the PQ and, and the Bloc uh, and, and, the, and Quebec Solidaire would not be passing uh, this sort of uh, small nationalist thing. It's more Duplessis that's coming out of him hmm. than uh, the PQ. Uh, it, it's nationalism without necessarily separatism. And I think nationalism is a more serious thing than separatism. Separatism is a debate about whether this is the most convenient way to draw the borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, separatism is in the same category as somebody, uh, and I think there may be some people out west who would want to join the states. I don't, but, you know, it's a debate. Uh, however, uh, nationalism, favoring one group of people over another, mm-hmm. is a, a different matter, and that's what's happening here. But once again, we shouldn't exaggerate because the law isn't hasn't been shown yet, and 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 they've occasionally gone back on some of these uh, trial balloons. I think uh, so. Uh, it's not yet certain what's going to happen, but yeah. I, I find it very distasteful. They seem to be on a course. Uh, let let me ask you about this. You talk about the government going back on its decisions. The story of the young woman from France, Emily Dubois who's an entrepreneur in Quebec City and uh, wrote her PhD, PhD thesis in English, except in French, except for one chapter, which had to be written in English, according to Ms. Dubois. She is also, uh, she's from France, so French is her mother tongue. 
And she, as you well know better than I, but she, she was uh, disallowed. Her permanent residence status in Quebec was initially disallowed because it was argued that her French wasn't sufficiently up to par because she'd written that paragraph or that chapter in English. And then she did a test, a French test, and the government still said no. Then it became an international story. Now they've backed off. No, they did what, back is, off. what is going on? Well, you know, there is a French expression, le ridicule, and this was ridiculous. This was ridiculous. Some official who probably didn't have, wasn't close to her academic level, hasn't written a PhD, etc., decided that the fact that she decided to write a chapter in English, probably because of that area, most of the research was in English, and uh, she was doing something in business, and there's a lot of stuff that's written in English. And you could have the opposite. You could have an English thesis that has a chapter in French. Uh, they decided. And in the rest of the country, they say that's great. No, they don't say that's great. People laugh. But, I mean, in the rest of the country, nobody would be complaining about it in the rest of the country. But people should laugh. Laughing at these types of things, I think, will bring about uh, an awful lot of uh, uh, second thoughts uh, among those people who allow themselves that. You remember battles over whether spaghetti should be banned? I remember that, of course. Uh, all, all, All of those things. It's the pettiness of it. And that's why I want to distinguish it from... Uh, separatism, with which yeah. I don't agree, Julius, I, I have uh, a... but which is the goal and 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 an open and and not uh, uh, not dreadful goal uh, of the particular. So I have a I have and about a minute. I have about a minute left. It wouldn't be funny to Ms. Dubois, and it would probably scare a lot of other people who would come to Quebec on an understanding on a on a program that was in place that would allow them permanent residence it would scare them if this young woman was denied permanent residence because uh, because she wrote a chapter in a phd thesis in in english that would frighten people it's the idea that english is there's something wrong with english yeah. uh, knowing english is a bad thing i mean this is a, a type of thinking that shouldn't exist in, in, in a highly educated society, that right. is a highly educated society, and I think it'll pass. I appreciate your time. It was probably decided on by an individual who couldn't spell PhD. I'm sure. PhD <laughs> would be too much for him to spell. Thank you so much for the time. Always great talking to you, Julius. Thank you. My pleasure. Julius Gray, constitutional and human rights lawyer in Quebec. We're back on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, let me just before I introduce you to my next guests. I want to read to you a tweet that I saw uh, yesterday, and this is from at S underscore Williams 59. Just learned a friend in Atlanta lost his best friend, a Vietnam veteran, diagnosed with terminal cancer, given four months to live, and was denied pain medicine, committed suicide in May of 2019. That is what's going on. That may be the United States. It's also going on in Canada. The voice you heard was uh, a guest on this program in the past. Julie, a pain patient, you heard her explain. Joining me now are Scott and Chrissy. That's how we're going to identify them. We'll use their first names. We won't tell you where in Canada they are. I don't think that serves any purpose. But uh, they have... um, a very, very disturbing story to tell because of what's happening to Scott. How are you both? Well, we're hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. S- Scott, let me ask you about the pain that you're living with. What's it like for you on a daily basis now after you've been cut off or at least 80% of your meds were reduced, cut off from you? What's life like every day? It's 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 unrelenting. It never goes away. Um, if I have to go out and... Um, and go to a doctor's appointment. I have to double my medication just to leave the house. So it leaves me short for the other day for, for you know, the 20% I get, I, I get now after 33 years of use. Um, my pain was, was wonderfully treated for many, many years. They, they, the college actually took away my pain doctor, who also was my family doctor, for over 25 years. No reasons never wrote me all went through my doctor so i can't go to human rights i can't there's not a there's not a thing i can do to fight the college's decision so let's just let's just go through this a little bit here you had a doctor for many years yeah and that doctor was prescribing yeah. pain medication for you that you'd worked out with him yeah and it worked worked wonderfully absolutely wonderfully it provided you quality of life 
totally, totally. And I was an active person daily. I, I, I enjoyed life. I was a social person. My life was full. And when did you get this news that, A, your doctor was no longer going to be your doctor, and when were you told that arbitrarily your medications were going to be cut by 80%? Uh, I think it was August of 2017. And, and, and your doctor, your, your longtime family doctor, can no longer take care of you, is that it? That's exactly right. No reason given? No, no reason at all, except he was informed by the college that he could not treat me and actually two other uh, ladies that, that was at the same pain clinic. And you, no had a, and, and, and you were taking your medication strictly as, as prescribed, right? Absolutely. You never broke, the, the, broke never over the line? To, you never I changed was, anything? I was prescribed properly. I never had to take more. I, it, it always worked. So troubles actually, I'll tell you kind of what, what happened was when they changed the formula from oxy, uh, cotton, doxy, neon, that's when my troubles kind of started. So they had to supplement it with, uh, with another drug. So, of course, my, 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 uh, my doses increased because the oxy neon didn't, didn't work like the oxy cotton did at all. Scott, was there concern that you were taking too much um, medication? Well, I mean, was it, was it not according to my doctor. Not according to your doctor. wrote me and said, hey, you're taking too much or anything at all. And it worked for you, worked for, you for years. It worked for me for 33 years. So you feel like there's no recourse for you now, right? Um, suicide is about the best thing that I could... Um, I've asked to be put to sleep, but of course they just look at me like I'm nuts. But try to live, in my, try to live my life. It's hell. It's awful. Let me let me ask you this. Um, you, you you're seeing uh, a pain clinic doctor now, right? Yeah, yeah. And they cut you back to a, a, a number that's eighty percent lower than you were getting. Well, actually, yeah, I guess, I, yeah, I guess those were the people that, uh, yeah, those were the people. Well, they're, or, or, or they're the ones who are they're well, the ones. With my doctor, then they got this doctor. Um, I don't know if I should mention her. No, name, don't mention but, his uh, name. Uh, they, 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 they hired this other addiction specialist. Mm -hmm. I think in 33 years, if I was an addict, I, I think they'd know it. But they, they had this addiction uh, uh, doctor come out, and uh, she just hashed and slashed. And we were leaving for Phoenix for five months. So just before we're leaving for Phoenix for five months, this is when they, they, they taper my drugs down. And, I mean, it was, you know... It, 80% in less than three months. And it was never discussed with you? Oh, I, I saw the, the addiction uh, doctor. No, I mean, before, uh, they, before they did it. They didn't say... No, no not, nothing at all. So then, then, I, then I get a, a letter that I have to go after, after this uh, addiction specialist who is bonkers. Um, then I get a letter that I have to go to this pain clinic. The doctor I was supposed to see, um, I ended up seeing another doctor. And this doctor was, was not a good doctor. He tried put me on uh, subla, sublin, suboxone. Um, Chrissy, what's the? Suboxone. Suboxone, yeah. Um, for 33 days, I went off all, of, all opioids um, and on this, this new drug that said, oh, it, it'll just, it'll work, it'll work within two days. You'll be a new man and, and, and you'll be great. So for 33 days, I went through pure hell. I never knew I had that much pain. I had no idea. It was the worst, well, it wasn't the worst time because I'm living the worst time of my life every day now. Scott, what's but your pain level right now? Probably, probably a good 7 out of 10. And I can't sleep. I sleep for three hours. If I move in the middle of the night, I wake up. So, you know, I average three hours sleep a night. Maybe I might get four. Um... I was also prescribed uh, Valium because of my spasms and so on for, for a number of years. But they took that away, too. Let me, I, I'm so hesitant to ask you about this, but you want to talk about it uh, because it's part of what happened to you. You did try to take your own life because of the pain. You're absolutely right. I sure did. And that was recent. That was very recently, yeah. 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 To explain, I, I explain to it. I, I can't live like this. They don't, they, you know, the college says, oh, we, we don't tell doctors not to do this and do that. And they're absolute liars to us. 
they, they get reports all the time, oh, if you're prescribing too much, they get all these threatening letters, and uh, try to find a doctor now. <laughs> when, when, you're, when the pain is at its worst, when it's at the level where you try to take your own life, what is that like? Explain to people who don't understand, who've heard the term chronic pain, maybe don't understand just exactly what's happening in your life when it's at its worst, now that your meds have been reduced after many years of successful treatment by 80%. What's life like for you that you get to the point where you say, I'm going to just end my life? What's it well, like? Well, I've got, what, what, I'm pro, pro, uh, what I'm told what I have is called myofascial pain disorder. So I get pain throughout my whole body mainly into my neck, my head, uh, my shoulders, my lower back, my feet, my legs. But it, it, it feels like somebody's going in there with a great big wedge, and they're just grinding that wedge into my back and just grinding it, and it's unrelenting. It doesn't go away. It's constantly there. And when you were had your medications before the 80% cut, what was your day like again? Tell us. It was great. It was great. I was half normal. I could go out, I could cut the lawn, I could, you know, if a buddy needed a hand doing something, I worked, I, my life was full. My yeah. life was enjoyable. Yeah. I, I loved life. Yeah. I, I could sp- play with my grandchildren. I, I could build things in my yard. I, I, I was a busy guy all the time. It's just heartbreaking you know What's happened to now in two years? I've put 80 pounds on. <laughs> like, they're really helping, aren't they? They're, they're just helping me out so much. Scott, can I talk to Chrissy for a second? You sure can, yeah. Hi, bye. Hi, Chrissy. It must be so hard for you to, first it of all, is. see your husband this way and know what's going on and now talking to me on the radio. And I know why you're doing it. You care about other people. You want your husband to get a better situation. What's life like for you watching your husband go through this? It's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. And, and, and he makes life all the more miserable because he is miserable. And, and when his pain is controlled, Scott loves life way too much to think about dying. But, it, you know, these last two years have been a much different story. Can you believe what's happening to him and what, what, what the medical system is doing to your husband? It's... What do you want to say to these people? Let the doctors do the doctoring. And, and those people that are controlling this, the politicians and, and the doctors who sit on boards and, and the doctors who know nothing about chronic pain, get, get your hands dirty. Start treating people or, or start looking at the patients that you're affecting. I'm going to keep in touch with both of you, as you know. And I think it's very brave what you've done to come on the air. We talked earlier today that this is like a 12-round boxing match, and it's not going to be over in the first round, but there are more and more media stories now about pain patients and their incredible suffering. And the medical regulators are saying they've only told doctors, they told doctors not to cut back arbitrarily uh, and, uh, and and not to do that. And... Uh, that's not what doctors and, and patients are telling me, as you, as, you, as you were pointing out. Both of you, uh, our thoughts, prayers, concerns are with you, uh, and, and I'm going to stay in touch with you, and thank you for coming on the show and letting the country know what actually happens to pain patients. Thank you very much, Roy, for letting us have a say. Take care, both of you. I know. Thank you much. I don't think I need to say anything more. International story. McDonald's restaurant's extremely successful CEO, Steve Easterbrook, was fired, as you may have heard, for having a consensual relationship with a subordinate in the workplace, and that violates company policy. Uh, Such a situation is a firing offense, and uh, Mr. Easterbrook agreed with the board of directors that fired him. And it, uh, it comes down to the issue of understanding the real concern about sexual harassment in the workplace. And yet, given the numbers of office romances, which have always occurred and I'm sure will continue to occur, uh, where does all of this fit and what does Canadians' law state? Uh, obviously, it's a, it's a real issue if you have um, somebody who's involved in a relationship uh, with, with a subordinate employee. You can say it's consensual, but then the question is, was it really? Lior Samfiro joins us, partner at Samfiro Tamarkin, 
Uh, LLP, Lior is an employment law specialist, and uh, Samfira Tamarkin is in Toronto, Vancouver, and Ottawa. Lior, thank you very much for taking the time. And just off the top, your sense of the correctness of the firing by the McDonald's board of Mr. Easterbrook. Roy, always a pleasure to be with you, and certainly given the the fact that he is the CEO, you know the buck stops with him. He's the embodiment uh, of all company policy. You know, we cannot, as a company, it cannot give him a pass because if it does, it sends a message to everyone else that it's okay. So, in a situation when we are dealing with the head of the company, he, in this case, would have to be held to a higher and a very strict standard. Whereas in some situations. The company may be able to say, you know, don't do, do this again or, or try to deal with the situation short of a termination. When it comes to the CEO, the, the, the top person here, I think that the, the board of directors did not have much of a choice. Uh, he clearly breached the company policies. And even though it, it appears that it was all consensual, he did put the company at risk by engaging in this office romance. So I think uh, as a business move and as a legal move, it was the correct one. Okay, so it, it wasn't a case of where the board or they might have hired uh, an investigator to find out just how consensual the relationship was. That wasn't the point. He's the point man. He's the leader of the organization. The organization has policies, and the policy broke down at the very top, so he had to go. It is the risk of, of this relationship that is really the problem, because it, it's quite possible, maybe even likely, that in this particular situation, it was consensual, uh, it, and it may not have even spilled over into the workplace in the sense that it didn't impact the workplace, but the potential, the risk is there for someone to allege that, you know, my boss made me do it, and because he, he was my boss, uh, it wasn't fully consensual, or that other employees have become aware of it, have a problem with that situation, they, they, uh, they consider this to be preferential treatment. Uh, and given the, what's at stake here, a big company, so much money at stake, it is too big a risk for them to allow for this to happen, even if it's all consensual, even if he had actually nothing, done nothing wrong as relates to, to harassment or that type of a behavior. From a, from a corporate responsibility standpoint, they literally have no choice here. Is there anything in law, Lior, about this in this country? So the, the law ultimately, obviously, is, as you know and, and our listeners know, prohibit sexual harassment. But anything right. short of that, there's no uh, ability to, uh, for an, an employer to actually f- prohibit uh, workplace uh, uh, romances, except in situations where it does impact the business. So because of that, most employers don't bother implementing policies saying that for all employees, you can't engage in workplace romances. That is not feasible. And even if a policy like that existed and it was breached, the employer would not have much recourse against the employees. As a result, it really is something that's reserved for senior employees and specifically for uh, supervisors and subordinates. And it's the risk of harassment. It's the potential impact on the workplace. There is no law that, that, that says it's inappropriate to have a workplace relationship so long as it's consensual. It's a question of the employer's own concerns about the, the, the business and how it's going to impact that business. Do you ever see or do, do, do cases come before employment lawyers where the issue of uh, uh, firing, a dismissal, an end of employment um, is, is brought before you and an employee says, look, I got fired because I had a relationship with somebody or I'm in trouble because I had a relationship with somebody and I'm saying it was perfectly innocent, but they're saying it wasn't. Does, does that happen? come up very often, Roy, and, and you can imagine that in over half the situations, that's what study shows, uh, or for half of the employees, they've been, been engaged at some point in the workplace romance, so terminations as a result do happen. But here's the key to remember. Even though the employee may have done something wrong, as the CEO has in the sense that he breached the policy, that does, does not necessarily allow the company to flat out fire him. You know, doing something wrong, breaching a policy in and of itself is not a fireable offense, meaning the employer may still be on the hook to pay compensation, even significant compensation, to the employee that was engaged in that office romance. So I've often been uh, involved in matters where I've spoken with an employee who did engage in an otherwise uh, a, a consensual relationship, but one that was in breach of a policy, but they still were owed compensation when they were let go. It's not fatal to the relationship as long as it's consensual. An employer may still choose to part ways, as did 
McDonald's, and by the way, McDonald's did pay and are continuing to pay the CEO significant amounts of money. Right. So the fact that he may have done something wrong, and I, I think that uh, you know we've established that he has, does not mean that they can flat out just fire him without any compensation. Now, uh, I read a story a couple of days ago, and uh, it was I think it was in, a, in an, an American newspaper, and they were questioning whether CEOs should or routinely if they're fired for cause, and this was a case of for cause, if they do in fact uh, receive severance and get their stock options or get a whole package that they would otherwise have gotten if they'd stayed employed, is is that usually part of the deal or, or do you get part of it or do you just often get just a get out of here, you've, uh, you've, you've breached our policies and we don't want to see you again? It is extremely unlikely when we're talking about uh, firing a senior executive, a CEO, a vice president, a president, extremely unlikely for that person to be let go without compensation. Uh, that person would have had to do something so outrageously awful that, that you know, they couldn't show their face for them to be let go without compensation. So in most of these cases, an, an employer, a company, a board of directors may still choose to part ways, but there's going to be compensation. The last thing a company wants to do is get embroiled in a legal fight with their former uh, executive. That, that looks bad on them. That could put, uh, uh, bring to the forefront things that they don't want the public to know, things that they would rather keep uh, internal. And to avoid that situation and airing, uh, airing that dirty laundry, in the vast majority of cases, uh, the CEO, the, the executive departing, even though they may not have clean hands, is going to receive significant amounts of compensation uh, depending on a number of factors such as th- their position and, and, and the length of their employment and their age. Uh, it, could be, uh, it could be a lot of money. It could easily be into the seven figures or higher. Do you think that uh, Mr. Easterbrook is going to resurface as a CEO somewhere or is he too damaged now? I, I have no doubt that he will. Uh, the type of, uh, unless, of course, in the interim, uh, the allegations are made that the relationship was not consensual, that he was guilty of, of some form of harassment. If, if it's not that, and it's a, a kind of an error in judgment, I think that his resume is stellar enough as, as a CEO, as a, a business operator, that he will absolutely resurface somewhere. He does have a non-compete in his separation agreement from McDonald's. So for a period of time, he's not going to be able to work in that type of an industry. But I have no doubt when that expires, uh, we'll see him in a very senior position somewhere else. One more question for you. Undoubtedly, people listening to us across Canada, there'll be somebody who's listening to us who is either in an office relationship, uh, an office romantic relationship, or maybe close to getting into one. Are there any cautionary lights that you would light up for them any flags you would you would you would want to sort of indicate to them or display to them a advice you want to give them whatever whatever my mouth is trying to say Lior. <laughs> right what i would tell them and i've said this to employees in this situation before as as counterintuitive as this may seem i would tell them be upfront about it with your employer tell them about the relationship number one so that they know it's consensual and number two so that things can be put in place to minimize the impact on the workplace Perhaps the, the, uh, the two employees are not going to be scheduled together. Maybe they're going to be working in different departments or, or different shifts or what have you to minimize the impact of that relationship on the workplace. What I don't like to see is situations where you're hiding that from your employer because that employer can then say, well, now it's, it's a dishonesty in addition to a breach of policy, uh, and now we're even more concerned about your continued employment. So best advice is to be honest, honest be upfront, and to try to implement, implement measures where that relationship, even though it's with a coworker, doesn't spill into the workplace. Okay, and if you're not Steve Easterbrook, and you get caught in an office relationship that you shouldn't be caught in, you haven't been upfront, you've violated policy. Now that is that is something that could follow you for the rest of your professional life. No, it, it is certainly. I mean, no one's ever going to be able to think of this uh, Mr. Easterbrook without thinking of this, or or, yeah. or Google his name without coming up with this story. Right. Uh, you know. Hopefully, for his sake, that this this ends here, and there's no further allegations arising out of this relationship, and no one ever alleges that it was uh, less than consensual. 
so he may well uh, be able to get past this with the passage of time. But for many people, uh, that can certainly impact them in the future and can impact their employability. So you really have to think about that, especially if you're in a senior position and are going to be engaged in a relationship with someone under you. Leo, it's always great talking. You're so informative. Uh, you, you know this issue of employment law better than anybody else. Uh, I, I certainly know. And thank you so much for the time. Always a pleasure, Roy. Thank you. Lior Samfiru is a partner at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. They are in Toronto, Vancouver, and Ottawa. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.